All right. Praise the Lord. If you turn with me this morning to 1 John chapter 2, we'll read together chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. First John 2, 1 through 17. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but He who does the will of God abides forever. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that we would study it and think about it, meditate on it in a manner worthy of the very words of God. Pray, Lord, that you would bless this time together, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I wanted to quickly address something before I start this morning. You might notice that your handout um, is in New King James Version this time. That's because someone lovingly and wisely uh, encouraged me this past Wednesday that I transfer everything over to New King James for consistency. Um, So I did. I think that was a good idea. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. Um, Please forgive me 
for uh, my message last week, if it was hard to follow for that reason. Um, I want to go back and actually clear up one thing that I think might have been particularly hard to understand. And that's in, uh, this is before we get into chapter 2, so bear with me. In chapter 1, verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. I use this verse to indicate that I believe that, it was one of the verses I used to indicate that I believe that the audience is a saved audience. Although I think there are many other verses that can prove that, I wanted to address specifically the word your. Um, This is your in the New King James Version, but in many other versions it uses the word our. And that is significant because it indicates whose joy is being fulfilled. And, I, you know, I wasn't sure at first why it was different. Because that's a significant difference. That's because there's actually a textual variant. And I don't want to get into too much technicality, but this is important for you to be aware of. There are multiple copies of the New Testament that we have. And the New King James Version, being based off of the King James Version, was fashioned, it was translated on an older copy of the Greek New Testament than some of the older versions are. And the other versions are based off of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1940-1950s. Now, what do we do with this? By the way, I'm not saying that the Dead Sea Scrolls are newer copies of the New Testament necessarily than the other copies. They're just found more recently. But what do we do with this? Um, Some of you might have been asking, why is this important? Why do we need to even think about it? Well, it's important because there are many people that would try to use this as an example for the lack of trustworthiness of the Word of God. They would say, well, you don't actually know what it says. There's too many variants. There's too many things that are different. Well, I'd like to argue really quickly this morning that not only can you trust the Word of God, but these variants are fairly easy to overcome. In, uh, and you might even be able to decide which one you think is correct, which one was the original. How would we accomplish this? First, let's go through a theological uh, interpretation of both examples. And then we'll address a contextual interpretation. Um, and we'll decide. First, If it is your joy may be full, then we have to remember that as believers, uh, we know from James chapter 1 verse 2 that believers are capable of having joy and are in fact commanded to have joy through various trials. So it is possible that it's referring to the believers and that they have joy because although walking in darkness, some of them, they are in fact believers. And that the fulfillment of that joy will be made complete through the restoration of their, their, their heart, the restoration of themselves to God and with the, the rest of the believers. And if that's the case, is that theologically consistent with the rest of Scripture? I would say that it is. I don't think that poses any problems whatsoever. Now let's um, look at the other option. Our joy may be full. By the way, the difference in the Greek is humon or hamon. There's one letter difference. Just one. 
quite similar to our English translation, actually, with our and your, just one letter difference. Um, Our joy may be full. This would be the apostles. They're witnessing what's going on in the church. They're looking at the situation. They're recognizing that there are believers there, but in fact, they are walking in darkness, and they need to be restored back to fellowship with God, the Father, Jesus, and the rest of the believers. In which case, this theologically, I believe, is also sound with the rest of Scripture and poses no problems. However, contextually speaking, I would make the argument that if the believers are walking in darkness, as it says that they are, And this is indicated in more than one place. But you can see it specifically in chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 11. If they are walking in darkness, I would say that even though they are saved, they are not joyful. And so I would think it makes contextually far more sense to say that the apostles are the ones whose joy is desires to be fulfilled in the restoration of the saints. Um, What I would encourage you to do, you don't have to do this, what I would encourage you to do is you can see in my notes, all I've simply done is put parentheses around the why, and that just indicates that it's a textual variant. And hopefully now what you can do is if someone comes to you and says, oh, there's so many textual variants. Well, first off, there are remarkably few textual variants in the Bible, for how long it's been preserved and how many times it's been copied. Remarkably few. Two, theologically, it is not an issue either way. And three, contextually, you can usually come to a fair conclusion on which one it was. Now, hopefully that clears things up a little bit because the version I was using last week was said our and the, the New King James Version is your. Now, I don't want by any means to indicate that I don't appreciate the New King James Translation. In fact, you'll see later in chapter 2, verses 3 and 6, that I think the translation is significantly well put. I really like it. Uh, It's very true to the Greek, and I like it. I've grown in my appreciation of the New King James, but in this case, I would say that there is is perhaps a mistake. Not a mistake, mind you, but a, a perhaps a better way to put it, a better variant. Anyway, now let's jump into chapter 2, and hopefully we can move a little bit further. We talked a little bit already about chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There is a break here between chapter 1 and chapter 2, but I want you to remember those chapter and verse markers, although incredibly helpful, were placed there by a Catholic cardinal in roughly the year 1228. His name was Stephen Langton, and... His chapter and verse markings are not inspired. In fact, I would make the argument that these books were meant to be read all the way through and studied all the way through. And unfortunately, uh, time doesn't permit me to go through all of the book of 1 John. 
Um, I could do that, but I don't think it would be wise. I think it's appropriate to break it up and to study it deeply. But just keep in mind that just because there's a chapter break here doesn't mean that the flow of thought has ceased. In fact, I would say that verses 1 and 2 very well um, flow from the first chapter. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, this isn't particularly difficult to understand. But it needs to be said all the same. And he is trying to reemphasize, as I mentioned last week, that it is not that you need to just sin and then confess your sins and sin and confess your sins flippantly. You need to not sin. And that's the second main point. First main point, the Bible is reliable. And if you have questions, by the way, if you want to talk to me later about that, I am totally good with questions. I love having theological conversations with people. If I have the opportunity to clear something up for you, I would love to. If you disagree with me, come talk to me. I love disagreeing with people. And (laughs) potentially hopefully finding agreement at some point. I I think that it's good, it's healthy, it's beneficial. Um, But like it says in Romans chapter 6, coming back to the text, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound? Horrors? No. May it never be. It's the idea. The idea here is don't sin. That's point number two. Point number one, Bible is reliable. Point number two, don't sin. And that you might say, well, that's, That's just, uh, that's hard. Well, yes, it is quite difficult. But all the same, that's what we're commanded to do. Um, But if we do sin, if anyone does sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I mentioned last week that I think that's reference to the Old Testament prophetic nature of the Messiah. The righteous one would come and he would take away your sins. He's referring to, back to that prophetic, that prophecy in the Old Testament. He's saying, he's here. He has been manifested. He's been revealed. He's appeared. Moving on to verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, it will become incredibly important as we walk through this passage to understand when he's talking about a believer and when he's not talking about a believer. In this case, he is talking about someone who resembles a believer in word, act, maybe even mannerism. Maybe he's been in the church for a long time. But the truth of the matter is that you know that you know him if you keep his commandments. If you say, you can claim, you can verbally say, I know God. But if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. Truth is not in you. The truth is not in you. Um, And and so what 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 are God's commandments? That would be incredibly important, right? If we need to obey God's commands in order to be saved, we must know what God commands. Amen? Amen? Amen. We must know. Well, 
let's just hold that question for a little bit because he's going to explain it. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And this is the same word, by the way, used in chapter 1, verse 4, to be brought to completion, to be full, to, be f- to finish. Um, quick little story, actually. In Greek class, I took Greek 1 and 2 three times. I'm, I, I passed the first time. I passed the first time. But I was this close to not passing. And I knew if I took Greek 3, I wasn't going to do well. So I took it again. But I, and in Greek class, you pick a name, and the third time I took Greek 2, I picked the name Teleso, which means I will finish. <laughs> and when I, when I got to the last day, and I handed in my last test, and I did, I finished, I said, Teteleka, that's my name, which means I have finished. <laughs> and that's the same word here, is I finished the, the love of God will be made complete. It will be whole through obedience. It will be perfected. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. I love the way this is translated. This is very good. Some people, or some translations just say ought to walk as Jesus did. And the true word in the Greek is kainos. It's, it's ambiguous. And I don't want to take away from the ambiguousness of, first, or of John because he wants you to think, who is it that you're supposed to walk like? Who am I supposed to emulate? I think the answer is Jesus. But I think he wants you to, he wants you to think about it. Who should you emulate? And furthermore, how do we emulate him? Well, Jesus was perfect. Does chapter 1 indicate that we can be perfect? Absolutely not. It's impossible. So if we can't be perfect, how do we emulate Christ? How do we walk as he did? What is it just talking about? What are we just commanded? If we love, we keep his commands. We obey Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That's how we walk as Jesus walked. We are obedient. That we can do. And this is relevant. Later we're going to come back. This first John, or yeah, well, first John, he likes to um, he likes to skip back and forth. You guys remember in chapter one, I or. Yeah, chapter 1 showed you this. And he goes from, you know, if, if, we, if we say that we have fellowship, if we say that we have no sin, that's verse 6, 8, and 10. If we say that we have not sinned, and he hops back and forth between the person walking in darkness and the person walking in light. Well, he does that with portions of his passage as well. And you'll see that when he, um, when we come later to chapter 2 and verse 15, he's actually going to be referring back to verses 3 through 6. And I'll show you when that comes. Don't worry about it. But you just want you to keep that in mind. That he is interweaving all of these passages in together, intricately. And it's beautiful when you see it. It makes sense. Uh, for now, we'll keep going though.
chapter, verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old one. Which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. All right. Verses 7 and 8 are a little bit complicated. And I'm going to try and walk you guys through this and explain it to you so it makes sense. Just be patient with me. He says here that the old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. That is a reference to chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning. The word, word, can be also translated message. So this is the message that you have from the beginning. What is the message? Right now we know that the message as being verses 6 through 10 or 5 through 10 of chapter 1. Everything mentioned there. The idea of walking in darkness, walking in light. But there are more references in 1 John. Remember I talked to you about how he kind of hit, he kind of, he kind of does like hopscotch. He goes back and forth. Well, in, ver- in chapter 3, verse 11, he said, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He further clarifies what the message is in chapter 3, verse 11. In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So he... He, he expounds more on what the commandment is, what the message is, as he continues in, verse, in chapter 3. We're not there yet, so I'm including it now, so that you can tell that the message is, one, salvation through Jesus Christ. Two, if you sin, you have restoration with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ and the confession of sins. And three, your commandment is to love one another. Those are the elements of the message. Those are the elements of the command. Those are what you're responsible for to be in obedience with God. Okay? Verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you. We're going to stop there for a second. What do you mean a new commandment? You just said this isn't a new commandment. You said it's an old commandment. Well, there's a new commandment. (laughs) What is he talking about? This, I just told you what the message is, what the commandment is, right? Is that something recently told them? No. The Old Testament has that same message. By faith, through Christ alone, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So what he's saying, I believe, what he's saying is that the new commandment is also the old commandment, but there's a new component. There's a new aspect to it. What is new about this commandment? In my humble opinion, it's the appearance or the manifestation of Jesus Christ. The old commandment, they're looking forward to Jesus Christ as coming. And in the New Testament, they have seen him. They're looking back. They know that he's come. 
To me, that is the best explanation for this. And if you disagree with me, that's perfectly fine. But I want to hear what you think. All right, let's keep going. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So, I want you to think about this passage, but don't think too hard about this passage. If you think too hard about this verse, it might become confusing. I want you to think about it with regard to chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, because what is, it's talking about darkness and light again. What else do we know? I write to you. You, the audience. You, the believers, in whatever church he's addressing. Which thing is true in him, in Jesus, or in God, and in you? So he's, again, he's addressing believers. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The way I understand this is, is like this. When we are unbelievers, we are darkness. We're walking around in darkness. And we have no light at all. When we are saved, we're unified with Christ, with God through Christ, and we become light bearers. We become vessels of light. But because we are not completely sanctified and Christ hasn't come again, we haven't gone to heaven, we still occasionally fall back into darkness. That light is not snuffed out. But when you are reunified with Christ, you're reunified with the source of your light. And what this passage specifically, verse 8, is talking about, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining, it's already shining within them. And I believe as they're reading this, they're beginning to understand the, the condition of their sin. And as the veil is being removed and the sin that blinds them begins to cease blinding them, they begin to understand and they repent. I believe that as light bearers, God works in them to reunify himself with them. So he who says, now verse 9, he who says... Um, oh, I have a reference first in 1 John three fourteen through 15. 1 John three fourteen through 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This passage is, is significant because it uses the same word, passing, from death to life, from darkness to light. I believe that those are, are similar. But what it's not talking about is an unbeliever here. Because a murderer is someone who, who perpetually murders. They are, they are 
someone who is murdering. In fact, the um, participial form is used here for the verb. And it, it says that they are constantly doing this thing. And we already know that he who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, do any of us hate ever? Of course we do. So if we hate, that makes us a murderer. If we're murderers, how can we have eternal life? It's because we have the ability through Christ to be reunited with God the Father, with Jesus, and with the believers. We have the ability through his work in our lives to confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is important to bring out because in verse 9 of chapter 2, it says, He who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in darkness until now. Until now just means he has, he's been in darkness and he remained in darkness. He never ceased to be in darkness. So he who says, he makes a claim with his mouth that he's in the light, but hates his brother, hates being a participle, the ongoing process of hating without ceasing, without restoration to God, without the renewal of life in him. He who does that, he's still in darkness. He never left the darkness. But verse 10, he who loves, by the way, notice it didn't say that he says he loves, but he who genuinely, authentically loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that's why I think darkness has, has more to do, it's a complicated idea. It has to do with separation from God and light being the restoration of fellowship with God. But it also has to do with ignorance. It has to do with, and, and by the way, ignorance is not, it's not something I mean to demean anybody. I am ignorant of how to perform brain surgery. Many of you, I'm sure, are. But that doesn't mean that I'm dumb or any of you are dumb. It means simply that we don't know something. That's all it means. And I think if any of us are humble today, we'll admit that there are things that we don't know. And then it makes us all ignorant to some degree of something. In fact, I hope you admit that because God knows all things. And if you knew all things, you would be God. And I hope you don't claim to be God this morning. What it really means is, is that the darkness is, is, is causing ignorance specifically concerning sin. Specifically concerning things that separate us from God. And the one who loves his brother, he abides in light. And that is also a command of God that we love our brother.
Let's move on to chapter, chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Now that's encouraging, but what does it mean? Well, before we get to what it means to overcome the wicked one, I want to point out to you the progression that he uses. He repeats the same statements twice, right? Verses 12 and 13, and in verse 14, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you, little children, fathers, and young men. Um, Verse 13, when it says, I write to you, little children, that's in past tense um, in the Greek. It's a past tense verb. So properly, it might be um, parallel to the other ones. You have a grapho, 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 agrapsa, agrapsa, agrapsa. So um, you might want to make a small note in your margin that this is past tense. Interesting that it me- it's past tense because he says, I write to you. Currently, I'm writing to you. But he's also written previous letters to them. This isn't the first time that he's addressed them. But this is the first, this is the recorded Uh, letter that we have to them from him. But his purpose in both letters was the same. I write to you, because you have been forgiven, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Um, And parallel with the past, with the same, uh, with later in verse 13, I write to you little children, because you have known the Father, So when it says that they know him, it's the same as saying their sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And that is consistent with what we've seen at the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 3 through 6. That by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, in chapter 3, verse 21, he'll say, actually, the opposite of this is that I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth, and that no lie is of the truth. He keeps reiterating to them that he knows that they're a believer. And I think reconfirming in their hearts and minds that they are believers. Because if you heard the message that he says in chapter 1, you might begin to falter in your, in your sinning. You are doing those things, claiming that you have not sinned. You are hating your brother. You might start to think, maybe I'm not saved. But he's saying, no, you are saved. But what you need is restoration through, in the, with the fellowship of believers and with God and Jesus Christ. That's what you need. And so I think that's what he's doing here is he's reaffirming to them that they are believers because you've known him who is from the beginning. 
And I think specifically to the young men, he says that they're conquerors, that they've overcome. Now, why does he use language like that? I believe it's because young in the faith, you might, might wonder a little more than someone who's older in the faith. Now, what does it mean to overcome the wicked one? Chapter 3, verse 8 says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That was Jesus' purpose in coming, to destroy the works of the devil. And what did Jesus do? He saved us. Salvation is how we overcome the evil, the wicked one. They are saved, and they've overcome the wicked one. Just a couple more verses. Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Take your mind back to chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We love God by obedience to God. And it says here that if we love the world, then we don't have the love of the Father. So the love in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 is an obediential Maybe that's not a word. It's a love of obedience to God. I make new words all the time. Just, you get it. You know what obediential would mean. Here in verse 15, I believe it's the same type of love. You can either love God by obeying Him, or you can love the world by obeying, uh, by obeying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the pleasures of this world. You can submit yourself in obedience to God or these things. There is no middle ground. None whatsoever. So choose obedience to God. Once you reiterate a couple of things as we close this morning. The Bible is trustworthy. Even though there are textual variants, you can trust the Word of God. Two, don't sin. Don't sin. It causes you to fall out of fellowship with God and Jesus and with the believers. And three, Learn to maintain your joyful fellowship. Learn to maintain it. Well, you say, that's hard. It absolutely is. But find hope in the knowledge that you can restore, be restored through the blood of Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this uh, wonderful and hopeful passage that you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that you would work through it in our hearts and minds, and that you would be glorified. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to act in obedience according to your word, 
that we would love one another, and that we would honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.